hello, I am Cliff Smith, the Washington Project Director of the Middle East Forum. And today for our webinar, we have a very special guest in Congressman Jim Banks. Middle East Forum has been friends with Congressman Banks since his first term in Congress. Um, briefly, he represents Indian's, Indiana's third congressional district since 2017. He is the chairman of the Republican Study Committee, this Congress, the largest caucus in Congress. He serves on the House um, Committee on Armed Services, Veterans Affairs, and Education and Labor. Previously, he has served six years in the Indiana State Senate. Um, he is a member of the Naval Reserve and has deployed to Afghanistan. He holds a BA from Indiana University and an MBA from Grace College. Welcome, Congressman Banks. Hey, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. No problem. Um, look, there are many topics we could discuss about what goes on in Washington and how it relates to policy towards the Middle East, Israel, radical Islam, and other topics that are of interest uh, to the Middle East Forum. And I'm sure we could spend hours talking about any one of them, but I'll just pull out a few today. Uh, let's start by talking about some recent past, and that is the Abraham Accords. Um, you personally attended the signing of the Abraham Accords, which were agreements facilitated by the Trump administration between Israel, Bahrain, and UAE for diplomatic relations, economic relations, and so on. Um, and later on, they were joined by Morocco and Sudan. Um, hopefully, this leads to a new and better future for Israel and its Arab neighbors. Um, my question to you is, what lesson do you think we should be learning from these events? And what is next in, our, in Israel's relationship with its neighbors? Well, uh, Cliff, to, be, to begin with, President Trump and the Trump administration deserves enormous credit for negotiating this, these historic agreements and the Abraham Accords. As you said, I was there, one of the highlights over the four years of, of uh, the Trump administration to be there on hand as the agreements were signed by President Trump and his counterparts. And uh, what's, what's uh, as historic and what's as important as to know is as the the work that went into negotiating those agreements. By the way, everyone said it couldn't be done. Uh, there, there were headlines for years, uh, not, uh, not just attacking the Trump administration for seeking to negotiate these deals, but mocking the Trump administration. There's no way that Donald Trump can, can, can uh, negotiate deals like these. And he ended up doing it and he never got enough credit for it. Uh, but I want, you, I want to compare how important and significant those, that, that this agreement was with an article on December 9th of 2020 in the Washington Post. And in that article, this was before President Biden was sworn into office, but President Biden's advisor said that offering a peace plan between Israel uh, and the Palestinians is not a strategic priority. And, and, and that, that, should be, that should be duly noted today because at this point today, uh, not only not only is it not a priority for President Biden uh, to to further the important work of the Trump administration, to to put an emphasis on this, President Biden still has not yet today even nominated anyone to serve in the important post as ambassador to Israel, which tells you that the Biden administration is not at all concerned with the uh, the nature of um, of the the instability in the Middle East or issues at large related to the long-term stability or, or the partnerships uh, of, with our most important ally of all allies, that being Israel. Um, if he's not, if he's not uh, interested in that relationship or the stability of the Middle East, and we have to ask ourselves, what is he interested in? Yeah. That actually leads me to the next question I had, um, and that is, it's related. And that is, um, you talk about the Biden administration sort of a uh, 
not looking at uh, Israel and the Israel-Palestine um, conflict. Um, last Congress, you uh, endorsed a concept the Middle East Forum has endorsed, basically the concept that Israel needs to achieve victory over the Palestinians. You know, that doesn't mean um, you know, anything specific. It means the idea that this idea that Israel will one day end and just go away, that needs to be taken off the table. Um, how do you think that the further recognition of Israel should, um, will or perhaps should affect the Israel-Palestine conflict? And do you think that you know, these recognitions of Israel help, will help it achieve victory over this idea that you know, its, its existence will one day end? Well, it's such an important question because you have to, at the outset, uh, as you ask it, I mean, the, you have to understand the paradigm that the Palestinians want to eliminate Israel. They want, they want to defeat Israel and they don't, they meet it in a, in a militaristic uh, uh, way in militaristic terms. And they want to wipe Israel off the planet, literally. So by endorsing efforts for Israel to, uh, to, to, uh, remain victorious. We, we don't, we're not talking about militaristic terms. We're talking about for Israel to prevail and for it to be continued to be a powerful, independent um, state. And, uh, and and that that's why that's why the Trump administration's efforts on this on this path and, and negotiate the Abraham Accords and a lot of the other important work that the Trump administration did for four years. It, it made President Trump the most pro-Israel president that we had ever had. And, and that, that, that put an exclamation mark after that, underline it. No one comes close uh, in being a, 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 a pro-Israel advocate um, as president of the United States. No one comes close to the important work that President Trump and his administration did over four years. So why do the Abraham Accords matter? It mattered. They mattered because of the recognition because of the, of the um, Arab countries who joined in those in, in this historic agreement um, uh, with Israel, recognizing Israel's borders and putting pressure on Palestine to recognize uh, Israel's sovereignty and their right to live peacefully. That, that's why it mattered. And, and that's why it was historic. That's why it was important. I mean, it, it had been a generation since another American president had led uh, uh, talk, peace talks like President Trump did uh, between uh, the Arab countries who are represented in Israel. And pr again, President Trump deserves so much credit for it. They never got, he never got it from the mainstream media. He didn't get it uh, publicly. It was all, it was covered up, but the, these were his, these were historic agreements that mattered greatly uh, to the sovereignty of Israel. And uh, we, I, I hope that history will look back. I know history will look back um, at, at these uh, agreements and President Trump's leadership in a way uh, in, in, in the decades uh, to, or generations to come, they, they will look back very favorably at the work that President Trump did when it came to these, uh, to these peace accords. So that, um, on that topic, um, obviously you would have supported a lot more, um, President Trump's approach to the Middle East much more than Biden's. And so now that we, President Biden um, is now the president, um, a question I have for you is, um, particularly as the um, head of the Republican Study Committee, as I mentioned, you know, one of the largest Congress, caucuses in Congress, you're in a position to both um, support the Biden administration if you think it's right, and to propose an alternative as the opposition party. Um, and so where, is there any area where you think it's especially important to sort of um, oppose the Biden administration or, or, and are there any areas where potentially there might be some agreement in ways that can be worked together? Well, uh, I mean, 
Cliff, from the out from the outset, I mean, we're three months into the Biden administration, and the only foreign policy that we've seen from from Joe Biden so far is a is is a reversal back to the Obama era policies and and the Obama foreign policies, which shouldn't surprise us since Obama filled his cabinet with Obama. Hold, this is the Obama. This is Obama's third term. When you look at the makeup of the Biden administration, Biden's foreign policy advisors are Obama's foreign policy team. So it shouldn't surprise us that now the, the, the posture of the Biden administration is one of appeasement. Uh, it's one of leading from behind. It is the opposite of the foreign policy that we saw uh, from during the Trump era, which I, I, would, I would compare Trump's foreign policy uh, to, the, to Reagan's peace through strength uh, the, the, the Reagan era foreign policy, there's nothing that comes closer between Reagan and Trump when it comes to the, their foreign policy, one of strength, one of, um, one of leadership on the global stage, a, foreign, a, a, a realist foreign policy that puts American interest first and ahead of, of all else and recognizing uh, in that that Israel is our most powerful ally, most important ally globally. So the juxtaposition between uh, the Trump foreign policy and the Biden foreign policy couldn't be any more stark. Um, all of that being said, I mean, uh, in these first three months, um, it appears that that uh, that President Biden is hell bent upon re-entering the re-entering the disastrous Iran nuclear deal, and uh, and the Biden foreign policy so far can be summed up with uh, his uh, his his path forward on a complete. Uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan and doing it on the anniversary of that tragic day on 9-11, 20 years later. There, there couldn't be any worse symbolism, by the way, than completely withdrawing from Afghanistan and, and allowing the Taliban to declare victory on the day that they precipitated one of the greatest attacks on American soil in American history. So that that is the, the Biden foreign policy. And, and in that, it makes it very easy for us as Republicans, as chairman of the Republican Study Committee, the, as you said, the largest conservative caucus on Capitol Hill, there are 154 of us. It makes it very easy for us to show a, 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 a very stark difference between those administrations and why we oppose the, the uh, Biden, uh, Biden Obama era foreign policy of weakness and appeasement. So uh, you mentioned Afghanistan, you're a veteran of Afghanistan. Um, and so do you agree with the decision to remove troops uh, or disagree with it uh, just on the way he's doing it? Or do you agree, disagree with it in general? Do you think that, um, you know, how, how do you think that the U.S.'s policy towards Afghanistan should be in the future? Well, I, I hope the future is different than, than the past. I mean, for 20 years, we've been doing the same thing over and over again. And as, as General H.R. McMaster would say, we do it over and over again on an annual basis. So it's like fighting a 20, uh, uh, what, what will be a 20 year war and fighting it 20 times, what, uh, year by year, uh, doing the same thing over and over again. I don't have to tell you what the definition of insanity is, but it, 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 it meets the definition uh, because we, we learn the same mistakes over and over again. We don't do anything about it. it. It's my sense though, after being on Capitol Hill for four and a half years, serving on the Armed Services Committee, serving in Afghanistan, in uniform and going back and traveling to Afghanistan as a member of Congress, that uh, it should be all, all of our goal, uh, uh, members of Congress, the, the president, uh, I know it's President Trump's goal, it, 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 uh, 
you know, I'm not sure what this will look like on President Biden's watch, but it should be our goal to bring our troops home, but to do so in a responsible way where we leave a stable um, and uh, strong Afghanistan behind. And by leaving today, we, we know because America's top military minds have told us that it will be only a matter of days or weeks before the Taliban completely take over Afghanistan um, once we completely withdraw. And that's why many of us believe and advocated to both President Trump and to President Biden in a, in a policy, in an Afghanistan policy of leaving a light footprint with a counterterrorism focus and get out of the failed nation building uh, attempts that we've made over the last 20 years that have, have been a colossal failure on, on all parts and instead focus on doing what we went into Afghanistan to do to begin with, which is to, to defeat um, a, a, a significant enemy and threat to the United States of America and uh, radical Islamic terrorism, uh, which, is, which, which we see in many forms, the from the Taliban to uh, the rise of ISIS-K in Afghanistan is something that does not get enough attention. I know that 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 uh, that you guys have paid a lot of attention to this, but the the rise of a uh, much more uh, uh, dangerous ideology of ISIS-K building up in Afghanistan by us leaving, we're ceding um, Afghanistan to these uh, terrorist groups who will build Afghanistan back into what it was before September 11th. Uh, 2001, which was a safe harbor uh, for terrorists uh, in this in this region, in this country. We can't afford to do that, or we will be right back where we started. We learn learn the mistakes of the Obama of the Obama uh, era uh, when the ab abrupt uh, withdrawal of in Iraq led to the rise of, rise of ISIS. Um, President Trump campaigned, by the way, on defeating ISIS, uh, and and he did it. He he broke up the caliphate in Iraq and Syria, but now we have a growth of ISIS uh, and, and the branch of ISIS-K growing in Afghanistan. We can't afford to, to turn this back over to them again, and we know, we know where this will lead um, in the aftermath. So, uh, the, and, and all that to say, I mean, just to, I don't, I don't wanna ramble any longer, uh, Cliff, but the, again, as someone who served in Afghanistan, um, who served with, Troops who died and gave the old paid the ultimate sacrifice in Afghanistan, um, served with those who did. Um, let me tell you, there's nothing more offensive than the thought of on September 11th, the Taliban declaring victory 20 years to the day of that tragic event that happened uh, in New York City uh, when I was a college student watching on television. What inspired me to serve my country uh, in a big way afterward, there couldn't be any worse imagery, any worse symbolism than what will occur if, if Joe Biden allows that to happen. Yeah, um, yeah. definitely know where you're coming from on that one. Um, um, on the issue of Iran, you already mentioned it. Um, we already know that uh, the Biden administration is having backdoor talks with Iran. You've called this a scandal in the past, um, and you strongly opposed um, his efforts to enter the Iran deal, which the Biden administration is quite openly trying to re-enter. I know, I uh, believe just yesterday, you introduced the Maximum Pressure Act, along with, I believe, it was 83 of your colleagues um, on the Republican Study Committee. Um, and this is basically what you view as the what should be the Republican approach to um, Iran vis-a-vis um, -vis the Biden approach to Iran, which is very different. But can you tell me more about this legislation and what you hope it can accomplish? Yes, I mean, I, I, like you, I'm, I'm deeply troubled by the signals of the Biden administration about 
re-entering the Iran nuclear deal, appeasing Iran, when all the while we know that appeasement uh, abets uh, a weakness and shows weakness on our part that, that allows for Iran to re rebuild their nuclear program, to continue to fund their proxy groups um, who have done harm and uh, uh, cost the lives of, of uh, thousands of American troops uh, in different places. Uh, it's why we took out um, Soleimani, the, the biggest terrorist on the world stage under President Trump's leadership. Why in the world would we agree to reenter a deal that we know was a bad, was a failed deal to begin with? That, uh, that even after Obama entered into the Iran nuclear deal, Iran continued to build their, their nuclear program. It, it, it wasn't a, a successful deal uh, in any way to begin with, and President Trump was, was right to get us out of it. In fact, he campaigned on it, and it, it was one of many promises that he made on the campaign trail that he kept. The, the, the maximum pressure campaign on Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo, Secretary Mike Pompeo's watch um, was a successful campaign. And we, we know that the maximum pressure campaign worked because it dried up resources in Iran. Uh, it, it dried up their economy. It dried up their resources to funnel to their proxy groups. And now the Biden administration wants to reverse it. And be, because they're, they're attempting to reenter the deal and reverse the maximum pressure campaign, the Republican Study Committee, which I chair, uh, wrote the Maximum Pressure Act. We introduced it yesterday. Uh, we, we have nearly 90 co-sponsors, if not over 90 co-sponsors at the moment. I expect many more to sign on to it as it gets more attention in the days to come. And, and it was great, uh, Cliff, by the way, to have Secretary Pompeo join us out at, uh, uh, in the triangle in front of the Capitol yesterday as we unveiled this uh, major piece of legislation because we wanted to send a signal uh, to... Uh, the Ayatollah and to, and to Joe Biden, that if you if you uh, re-enter the Iran nuclear deal and reverse all of the sanctions on Iran, it's not going to last for long because Republicans are going to win the majority in the midterms in 2022, and we're going to put those sanctions back in place um, right away once we uh, take back control and force force the hand of the Biden administration. There's also another component of this I want to talk about for a moment, and that's the proper role of, of the legislative branch of government, the Congress. Uh, the, the Obama administration circumvented Congress by not passing not by not passing this as a treaty through the Senate when, when he signed on to the Iran nuclear deal. It's um, it's it's shameful. And it appears that the Biden administration is going to take the same path forward. And, and the, the maximum pressure act that I that I introduced with almost 90 of my colleagues is Congress reasserting its proper role uh, in this uh, in this equation is something that you can count on a Republican study committee and conservatives like me to continue to do in the future. So in terms of the long term, you think that, uh, how do you think this legislation will affect the long-term strategy in Iran, regardless of who's um, president? I mean, whoever is president, you, you basically you're saying that um, Congress ought to play a bigger role in, in the foreign policy towards Iran and making sure that we have a consistent policy is kind of what I'm hearing you say? Yes. The, the, if, if the if the president and his administration are going to circumvent Congress, and we have a we have a constitutional responsibility to fill the uh, to fill the void, to do what we're supposed to do to begin with, and and um, and and assert our role ourselves, especially if the president is trying to take it away from us. But as far as the, the long term goal, if, if if President Biden is is going to 
re-enter this disastrous deal and appease uh, and reward Iran for their bad behavior, then Congress needs to step up to the plate and uh, and do something about it. But but let's keep let's take a step back and remember that Pre- President Trump issued 1,500 sanction designations on Iran and five executive orders expanding those sanctions. And uh, as a result of those sanctions, we know that Iran's foreign currency uh, reserves dropped 95%. That's why I said a little bit ago that the the maximum pressure campaign worked. The the Iranian military budget dropped by 25% because we dried up their resources and and their proxy groups and their militias had to cut their fighters' salaries in half as a result. So with the maximum pressure campaign that I, again, that we introduced yesterday, 90 co-sponsors and growing a product of our work with the Republican Study Committee, we codify the maximum pressure campaign that Mike, really really in the spirit of Mike Pompeo's work as Secretary of State that, that, uh, that he wrote, we codify that in the law uh, to determine the foreign policy moving forward. We should never reward Iran for their bad behavior. By, by doing so, we show weakness and we invite more of their malign activities uh, to occur in the future. And, and uh, it, when we're talking about uh, foreign policy at large, it's the opposite of what America's foreign policy should look like, especially in the Middle East. In terms of rewarding or not rewarding bad acts, um, another big issue in American foreign policy in general is our relationship with China, which is increasingly antagonistic. You have been very vocal in calling out China's bad acts. Um, one thing that has not gotten nearly as much attention as I think it deserves is the fact that China is increasingly diplomatically um, and economically involved in the Middle East. Um, initiatives such as the Belt and Road Initiative are going right into the Middle Eastern countries. They are um, been ec- increasingly economically entwined with Turkey, with Iran. Um, they're looking to play a, constro- a reconstruction role in Syria. Um, this is not even close to exhaustive. Bottom line is China is now seeking very strongly to be a player in the Middle East. Um, basically, how big of a problem do you think China's involvement is? Um, what should our US policy towards China's involvement in the Middle East be? And there are ways we could roll back China's influence that they've already gained. Well, we're not off to a good start in this administration to do that. And, and that should be troublesome to every American. But by, by the way, if you have a chance, I'm Cliff, you probably, I know you're an avid reader, but the, the new uh, book by Josh Rogan, uh, Chaos Under Heaven, lays out a case that I think is made better than anywhere else that I've read it. I don't, I don't, know, if you've, I don't know if you've picked it up yet, but it's worth reading. And really it calls out where the, uh, you know, in, in many ways, uh, the conflict within the Trump administration um, how President Trump addressed the China threat in a in a unique way, um, but also where where the where the Trump administration fell short. And I think it's important to go back and I, I have a a uh, 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 take a look at um, the missed opportunities over the last four years so we can learn from them. But on on President Biden's watch, I mean, we again we have a we're seeing a, a new president take office, and in, in his earliest days, has very little. Um, shows very few signs of actually uh, holding the Chinese Communist Party accountable and uh, reasserting America's role to circumvent the debt trap uh, diplomacy that you describe uh, that China is uh, employing in the Middle East. Why does it matter to us? It matters to us because uh, for China, China to diplomatically assert themselves 
in areas uh, where the United States has historically enjoyed strong relationships with countries like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Israel, Egypt, um, other countries that, um, that th those are, by the way, those are the, those are four of the five countries that, uh, that President Trump's ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, warned um, that China, China was uh, building up in the Middle East uh, more than, than elsewhere, in Israel and Iran. So Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, Israel, and Iran. I mean, and, and a couple of those countries, a few of those countries um, are very important partners. If, uh, you know, a couple of them are, are obviously not. But um, what uh, China's uh, debt trap diplomacy puts them in a position and a situation where they can leverage those investments and these new relationships that they're building um, uh, to, to use that leverage against the United States of America. I mean, that, that is the Chinese Communist Party's end goal is to dominate the United States of America. They know, they know that if they can uh, entangle themselves in places where the United States has historically enjoyed strong relationships like with Israel, the, uh, Ch China knows that that's one way, uh, one way to accelerate their dominance over the United States economically and militarily in the long term. So that's deeply troubling to me. And what's even more troubling is that the Biden administration so far has turned a complete blind eye to any efforts that were started under President Trump or because they were started under President Trump, President Biden has no interest in continuing efforts that would hold the Chinese Communist Party ac accountable and to reassert our leadership in places where it's desperately needed. So that's something that I work on uh, uh, extensively in my work here on Capitol Hill and on the Armed Services Committee and something that I appreciate the work that you all do and look forward to partner partnering more with you on in the future. Uh, we're running out of time, but I'll ask you one last question. Um, while we're in China's neighborhood, um, you are chair of the Pakistan Caucus, one of China's neighbors. Um, you've been active regarding questions in South Asia. Um, you've also been active in calling out um, radical elements in the region, such as Jamaat-e-Islami, a large inter um, network that the Middle East forms done a lot of work on. Um, last Congress, you um, introduced a resolution calling out Jamaat-e-Islami's bad acts and um, their um, potential involvement in terror finance. Um, but that is a continuing issue of, as you mentioned, China's influence in Pakistan, which is their neighbor, is another real issue. Um, and the wider issue, you see all kinds of different conflicts that um, inevitably come back to the United States' alliance and interests. Um, in the South Asia-China region, and that also, by the way, goes back to the Middle East, you know, radical ideologies in particular don't know borders. Um, so what should the U.S. policy be towards these sort of sub-state networks of radicalization? And um, what should our policy be towards um, South Asia and how it balances back to the Middle East? Yeah, uh, again, another very important question. I, I participate as a member of the Afghanistan caucus, the Pakistan caucus, the India caucus. Um, I've taken a, a, a significant um, role in all of these caucuses because I believe that uh, for to bring stability to that region, we have to we, we have to figure out what our strategy is moving forward. And I, 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 I'm often critical of the Biden administration, but the, these were areas as well where too often uh, dur during the Trump uh, era and the Trump administration, there was an erratic uh, strategy that often that often changed too quickly to keep up or didn't, didn't make sense and, and uh, creating a way forward to address some of these issues over the last four years as well. So. Uh, that being said, the, the 
the, the Mike Pompeo-led State Department uh, made strong gains on tackling some of these, uh, these uh, 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 developing strategies to combat some of these uh, terrorist groups and, and other elements. Uh, so far in the first three months on, uh, of the Biden administration, I've seen little effort or interest in the Middle East at all, but especially on addressing some of these threats that are, that are important, not just to the United States, but to our allies like Israel. And that, that's unfortunate too. I mean, again, at, at the outset of our conversation, Cliff, how is it that President Biden still has not nominated an ambassador to Israel, our most important ally, in, at, at least in the Middle East, um, if not uh, altogether the most important ally that we have around the world, um, whose interests are most closely aligned with the interests of the United States of America? How is it that, we, we, that he hasn't even nominated an ambassador yet to serve in that important post? Uh, it's because there's so little attention or desire to address these issues on behalf of this new administration. That should be, that should be deeply troubling to all of us. Uh, that, that and the, the rising threat uh, and violence that we're seeing from ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Taliban, um, uh, other uh, terrorist groups in, in this region, is something that uh, the Biden administration, apparently they, they just hope it will go away. It's not gonna go away if we don't have a strategy to, to combat it. And uh, as a member of Congress, it's my job to push the administration to do that. All right, Congressman, thank you very much. Uh, I would ask more, but I think we're out of time. Thanks so much for joining us and uh, I hope we talk to you again soon. Thank you, great to be with you.